You're listening to My Name Is My Name with APS. On today's episode, we talk to Alice Rakab. That won't confront itself. An America that began by sanctioning violence against black people and that continues to sanction violence against black people, no matter how many cops it makes black and no matter how many black presidents we have. An America that subsists. And the economic advantage procured through the brutal institution of slavery and whose guilt white America has passed on to the very same people that had enslaved, capturing them in the structure of social death. Where a doughy white boy given a gun and a badge can tell a grand jury of mostly white people who I think are epistemically incapable of understanding what that social death does without a lot of work. And even then, even then it'll only be a representation. You can tell that grand jury that he feared for his life because he saw a demon in front of him that he seemed to be mad that he was being shot and so he was coming for him. And that grand jury won't indict, won't even say that this is worth looking into. And I know all that, but I don't know what to do. I mean, I know I'm going to do all the normal things that we do. I'm going to go to the march. I'm going to hear people. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be a body there. I'm going to recommit my teaching to putting itself under uh, this as a kind of condition for its very existence. But I don't know how to end it. I take very seriously the strange miscitation of Césaire that you find in Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, where he says that the only thing in the world worth starting is the end of the world. And I don't know what that looks like. very sympathetic to people who look to armed struggle though it's hard to see that a victory is, is going to be happening there and while I certainly do not follow the media's narrative on property damage last night after the grand jury decision came in and MSNBC was filming Car, the first cop car who had its window broken out, you know, they they kept a camera trained on it like it was a child. And you know, I don't I don't give a fuck about a cop car. I don't care about any of the cars that were burned. I don't care about really even the businesses. Uh, this notion that little Caesars that we should be sad about Little Caesars being burned down, um, that this somehow is a symbol of work that is worth doing. Uh, You can go on Facebook, and I'm sure your racist aunt uh, will have something up there saying something about how they burned down the place where they had a job. Well, who the fuck wants to work at Little Caesars? 
I understand all of that, all of that anger, uh, the expression of that anger as a manifestation of the world, as a showing of what the world actually is, the world that we have made as white America. I've been really impressed with the, the Brown family throughout uh, this, this ordeal. I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it must be like to lose your child to the state, to a person who will never be held accountable for it. Um, and I can't imagine the kind of restraint it takes to not from the beginning come out and tell protesters who are gathering because of your child, because of his murder, uh, and not come out and tell them, you know, do what you need to do. But I know that these, frankly, understandable and perhaps even healthy expressions of anger, of rage, uh, I know that they're not going to result in a systematic change. Uh, and I don't know that a systematic change can come about uh, through armed struggle uh, because I think the state will kill everyone, quite frankly. And those it doesn't kill, it'll lock up and deny them status as political prisoners. But I'd understand it. I'd understand it. I get it. Get it. I understand the desire to put on a vest and explode. I understand the kind of taking into one's own hands their power even when the world tells you that you have none and you find this one little thing that you can do to say no. I understand that. And even recognizing that this may come from my own investment in the system, my own benefit that I get from living in this racist society. But for those of us who aren't ready to die, we have to go on living. We have to do something. And so that's why I'm back with the podcast. Because <clears throat> uh, it's something. It's why I teach, it's why I'm writing. Because it's something. It's not much. Can't pretend it's much. But for right now, it's what I have. And so on today's episode, I, I'm going to play you an interview that I did with Alice Rakath, a friend of mine who is doing a, a PhD at Kingston University. Um, you know, she engages with some of the theories that I'm, I'm engaged with, like Laruelle and other, other people in the French philosophical tradition. Um, but she's also doing some very interesting uh, dialogue with art. Uh, she's bringing all of this into uh, dialogue with the actual practice of making art. And I wanted to use this interview today uh, because I think that Alice embodies a kind of radical trust and drive to association. Uh, so a lot of her work takes place in Sierra Leone. Uh, she was there just prior to the recent Ebola outbreak, uh, which has broken her heart. Um, and she's told me on a few occasions now. Um, she's very worried about her friends there. She it's very difficult to get in touch with them but she does a lot of work in Sierra Leone and there she she creates a kind of art practice that's not about exploitation it's not about taking you know the the subaltern as an object for art but she enters into a collaboration with them uh, in ways that are informed by Laruelle and and point towards where I think he's helpful for, for thinking through these sorts of tactics. But that also displays a kind of fearlessness 
that drives her work um, that is frankly really inspirational uh, to me um, I'm I'm gonna turn it over to the interview now on the tumblr site uh, you'll find links to uh, a video that she made with a Sierra Leonean comedian named uh, People Pecan. Uh, you'll also see uh, in that same link a uh, video of me talking about uh, Larwell's theory of, of non-Marxism um, because we presented together on this in, in Dublin. Her film though is, is fantastic. Uh, I think that there is something truly special going on there. Um, there's a kind of movement towards the end of the world, if you will. Uh, and some of that comes out of her experience as a mixed-race person living in Ireland who, who passes for white, but um, who sometimes experiences anti-black racism. Uh, and some of that comes out of her experience of uh, speaking Creole, the kind of creolization uh, that you find in the post-colonial situation, uh, a wild creativity there. Um, a form of, of resistance, ultimately. And one that I think theorists and activists need to listen to. Uh, perhaps we need to put ourselves under that condition for doing any of our work. All right, with that, here's Alice Rakab. I take on North Americanism because I'm used to talking to my Canadian cousins. So I speak North American English as one of the many dialects of English that I speak. Okay. I'm like <laughs> uh, so uh, you're, you're currently at um, Kingston. Yeah, at the London Graduate School. Yeah. London Graduate School. Um, and you're working, uh, I know you're working with John Malarkey. Yeah. You're now coached by John Omoilarka. Omoilarka. Okay. Uh, John Omoilarka. And... Um, I haven't heard it said yet, I want to see it written. So, uh, I know you're working with John, and you're also working with someone else With there? Eleni Konyadu. Okay. And Dean Kenning. Dean Kenning. Yeah, so I have John, who's like film philosophy, film theory, and non-philosophy. Yeah. And Eleni, um, who is working, well, she's kind of advising me on the Qatari kind of things, and um, her background is in sound art, and she kind of is the nice sort of bridge between th theory and practice. And um and then Dean is a fine artist and he's actually with the Faculty of Art and Design in Kingston. So I have this kind of three three advisors and very necessary to have three because of the kind of practice that we're doing. What, what, what can you tell us about about yeah, the project? Yeah. Um because you're in your you're going into your third year now? I'm going into my yeah. third year, which yeah. is happening fast. And but so um, we we met when you were starting your first year, right? Yeah. 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 So I'd, yeah, yeah. I'd started to come to those and then Having attended those, kind of gotten talking to, to John and yeah, started to come up with an idea for a PhD and, and because Larawell was a visiting professor in Kingston and it was just like the perfect year to join because he was going to be coming and doing all those seminars and it's a really good opportunity to just to actually not only be working closely with John but like to have opportunities to actually speak. To very well about what I was doing in the, the broken French that I have, but just to have that kind of moment of going, so what about this thing? And he'd be like, yeah, actually, I, I'm writing about that right now. And I'm like, okay, and then when it comes in, out in English, <laughs> then I can have a look. And there are some nice opportunities to do that. That's cool. So, um, so you started doing the PhD. What 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 is the project? Like, is a, um, I'll probably say a little bit about um, the film you showed. Yes. Yeah. Maybe you want to talk about that too, but but just tell us a little bit about your project. Um, so, for me, yeah. So practice as research. What is that? And like practice being a really, if in one way for me when I look at, at Lara Wells' work, I'm like that is if there's any kind of demand made, it's this idea of practice of doing. There's you know um, 
and uh, you know I'm an artist and my practice the things that I can do with my body um, to make work make mm-hmm. artwork and um, kind of one of the core sort of things that I tried to sort of begin to talk about in my masters was this idea of um, collaboration mm-hmm. and human beings working together to do something and the kinds of bonds that make those things possible when there are so many kind of material obstacles to making something possible together as a group as two people as um, um as a community um there are the kind of the thing that holds people together is a kind of a, an ineffable thing and it started actually talking about like what what that thing could be called and looking at love and kind of very much coming originally from um like a Deleuze, Badiou and mathematics and those kinds of different ways of trying to read a set of feelings or thoughts or kind of bonds and um, kind of, yeah, feeling there was a deficiency there in the sense that my MA was perfectly sufficient and functioning but completely abstract kind of system of thought. And it was beautiful. It looked really nice, you know. I had lots of nice diagrams and set theory, and it, it fitted really nicely. It was argued really nicely, and there was a lot of feeling there in terms of like it really meant something to me, and I believed it. But whether it was practicable, and that because it was always with reference to this lived thing, this yeah. thing that we do, and it's a political thing, and so and like in the sense that it is, um, you know, about our situation, you know, <laughs> how things are now and how we can change them, um. And yeah, kind of feelings like for the PhD that perhaps the 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 the, the most obvious and important thing to do um, was to try and see how that actually worked in real life, and if it could, and looking at these things that bring people together, like you know, and and again, like yeah, looking at Badiou and thinking, okay, art, science, mathematics, um, these kind of sit places where truths can happen and. That being one of the reasons why I engage with Badiou is thinking about art in, in that way. And, mm-hmm. and um, But also seeing within art's practice it still having this kind of subservience to theory and being dominated by theory. And yeah, and in kind of a way, just kind of like when I got this started getting into Larawell, just kind of feeling these like affinities and being like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how I see it, actually. And those things that he kind of acknowledges are sort of like um, sort of uh, integrates. I don't know. Um, about Badiou's ideas and then also the way that he sort of goes but also that's still actually just the thing <laughs> that's still philosophy you know and um and that feeling like a very sort of pr- like a very natural progression that sort of turns it in on itself and um yeah and, and as, a, as a methodology being kind of something that came quite naturally to me would be to take something like theory as, as a material as, alongside many other materials and putting them together to make to make an artwork and that being very very intuitively something that I would do anyway and then and also the kind of fascination with the kind of paradynamics that happen when you mix materials together to some materials that are more dominant than others and then like really bringing it to a very very kind of simple sort of um sort of analogy is like when you're mixing colors like if you put red in something it's gonna gonna take over like you know it's gonna the color will have more red in it even if you put the same amount of both uh, yeah. if you mix red and white together you know the white it's, it's going to be more red than it is white and kind of looking at those sort of, and there's things that are almost intrinsic to the properties of the of these materials that make them more kind of potent or dominant or visible um in certain registers and um yeah and sort of looking at how theory in my work um was 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 working and 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 the kind of uh and sometimes being dominant yes yeah um, and how not necessarily making a judgment on that, but seeing like what what the investment was and how how is that actually playing out in terms of uh, an idea of balance or and then this idea of yeah democracy and that kind of being a really important sort of um, uh, concept and um, how to sort of work live that work that out through something really simple like making something and um, but making it complex by making it with somebody else. Because you can have these arguments inside yourself, but ultimately you're kind of it's still confined to a single world, which is me. Mm-hmm. And then this idea of really where things get tested is when you have to sort of um, do it with somebody else, invite someone else to do it with you, or kind of uh, propose an idea 
that isn't about me telling someone else do this with me i'm not a director working with actors but um kind of saying well i have this thing that i'm sort of interested in doing but i really like what you do and maybe the thing that you do the way that you think about this particular thing that i'm thinking about and when we put those things together that could make something that's better than either of us would come up with on our own and these kind of these kind of really simple just kind of proposals or how to sort of um yeah and once you sort of try and work with a group everything that you believe becomes kind of tested because you really it's no longer a closed system because you've opened it up and uh, you've kind of relinquished a lot of control and you're kind of no longer sufficient in yourself in right. fact you're completely deficient and that's and in a way turning to working with groups is about sort of seeing a deficiency in the way that you think or a limitation within your own sort of within your own physical self as well mm-hmm. but in, in terms of the, the your capacity to think through and past um and into a kind of a problem or a space and um that was sort of where the idea of collaboration kind of became central to a, a practice having looked at the idea of collaboration and congregation of um of subjects or individuals around an indiscernible object of desire um being sort of the idea of what the master's thesis was about and then kind of going but what is that and how does that actually what does that look like and does it really work and when it works it isn't going to be a perfect set of intersecting circles it's going to be much more complex than that it's not going to be flat it's not going to be two-dimensional it's going to be really messy (laughs) and uh kind of seeing and and those just being hunches and kind of going really the only way to know is to do it and to practice to to create a project or to create a scenario or to sort of um uh yeah try and make a certain set of things possible um so your phd has this uh has this kind of um theoretical element that's that's coming uh, a lot from a lot from Larwell, and then you also are doing um, uh, practical work in like Sierra Leone, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the that's kind of the, the, the that's the the, the um the conjuncture or the situation that okay. I've chosen yeah. to kind of go to, and I guess there's a lot of reasons why I chose that particular place. Some of them are, are just really personal ones because I have a connection with Sierra Leone um from my family, and I have a particular kind of a uh, resonance with the popular culture there and it's like uh yeah it's something that felt really natural like it's just something i wanted to do for a really long time was to work particularly with this group of comedians called stars combined there and but also being aware that there's a kind of a yeah it's like a kind of a subculture of of performing comedians and looking at the kind of images that were that they generate as part of their work and seeing how they immediately are hugely sort of attractive to contemporary art you know it it looks like ryan tricarton or you know and it's kind of echoing a lot of these really 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 kind of studied and kind of affected nuanced sort of images that contemporary art produces that is completely kind of plugged into like capitalism but this is like something that looks very like that but is coming from or in a sense i read it that way because of where i'm coming from and when i present it in on the platforms like of contemporary art and in galleries where i work or those kind of uh circulated in those circles it's read as that and when um when i kind of talk about how it isn't actually that that brings up some really really interesting um kind of discussions and so yeah going to sierra leone to kind of yeah to work directly rather than kind of remotely with um this group where I'd been in, I'd kind of I'd I'd found one of their films and spent time tracking them down to get their permission to take it as a found object and use it um but through translating it or through taking particular sections of of it and um making things that responded to it and kind of working yeah like calling it a remote collaboration because we didn't actually see each other they yeah. knew but that I was doing this and and um and um, and then finally, yeah, kind of bringing that collaboration to a person-to-person thing, and the risk involved there, and or um, you know, would it actually work? Where am I only able to work with their material as a kind of as something that, that's separate from them, that isn't them? Or can I work actually with them as producers and thinkers and makers like me? And um, 
so that's kind of what the, the project and what you would have seen yesterday it's kind of a manifestation of trying to make that real somehow and what what actually happens when you when you do that so translation's a, a big part of, of the project now yeah um it's kind of about like this sort of how to communicate like when you're not just dealing with yourself and your own kind of systems of logic and you are kind of yeah you're when you're reaching outside of that even if you speak the same language as someone there's something that sort of has to happen there that's negotiated and you have like certain set of tools in front of you that you can use to try and communicate and like when you're making like an artwork or something visual you don't just have the spoken word the written word you have a set of visual languages as well um and um that being kind of really helpful and that's kind of being very very interesting when we're making images and like making a recording being able to show the recording and um yeah and sort of not really being able to put my finger on exactly what we were doing that was communicating but when like because there was a language barrier in some in some cases i mean i have creole but not as much as I could and my accent is very kind of flat and Irish <laughs> and um, uh, but we did it and that kind of we managed to translate our experience into something that we were both really happy with and that is success as far as I'm concerned yeah, yeah. well um, I mean I was wondering if you'd be willing to say a little bit more about your connection with Sierra Leone, um, why like specifically Sierra Leone was the, the place you, you went to? Um, well, it's really just kind of simple. I, I went there to visit my family four years ago and I found, yeah, I kind of got really, really interested in the in the pop culture there, like in the, com the comedy that they were producing and, and um, this particular kind of very, I guess, quite Sierra Leonean kind of type of comedy that often deals with quite tough kind of subject matter like the the f original film that really kind of was my window into this stuff was was called In Vulgar and it was talking about bulgar wheat the food stuff yeah. but how it was the only thing to sustain people during the civil war and also how like you know it had sort of adverse effects on one's digestive system and gave you the runs but you ate it and it sustained people and it was about this kind of it was just really humorous but also kind of poignant and just really really well executed and amazingly done and this kind of just sort of seamlessly brilliant piece of work um produced on a shoestring you know in a place where there is very little and that's kind of the point and that's but there's also in it it's just a really triumphant piece of work because it's not talking it's talking about survival right. rather than kind of obliteration and um yeah and it is really celebratory of that kind of idea of sustenance survival and um and humor and this kind of perseverance and those are like um yeah to have that as part of a humor it's not it's not like dark comedy there's no sarcasm there's no cynicism in this it's like actually just a presentation of of how things really were but somehow through the, the how they present that it kind of transforms it into this sort of like joyous sort of mirror of the situation and um yeah and then, and that really that that kind of took me and that was it it was like a moment of inspiration i was like wow that's amazing who are those guys and um and like going around trying to find out like i saw the actual film how i saw it it was like um there was a tv on this on a bar in this um ferry like ferry like a raft yeah. a depot thing and there are a couple of guys sitting around watching it and i started watching it too and they were like oh sit down you know and i started watching it with them and i really enjoyed it and i started asking them like oh who is this you know and like can i get a copy and um, and they went and got me a copy and I paid them for it or whatever and, and they and um, from that like on the DVD there was like a little intro about the, the, the comedians themselves and how the piece was made and I just started following like, as a lead and got an email address for the Bow District Descendants Association who had given support to it and funded the reproduction of the of the of the actual DVDs and they're actually based in the UK and got onto them about yeah just like in, in kind of just tracking them down like some sort of detective like getting on to the case and like going and meeting a guy in like a warehouse in 
nunhead um and he's a guy who actually was he's the chairperson of the Buddhist Descendants Association but actually he also runs a freight company and that's where his office is so going and sitting in this little office with this guy and going hi um, I'm Alice Rekab and I'm a researcher and this is why I love this and this is what I'm doing and I would really like to meet these guys uh, and see if we could do something together or what do you think about that and him going okay well the producer that made this video actually lives around the corner um i can give you a, a lift there now <laughs> and that kind of moment of trust of going okay guy who i've just met i'm going to get in the car with you and you're going to drive me to a flat block and at the top in that flat i'm going to meet oh, the right. guy right. the producer and kind of just kind of making a decision that yes i was going to do that so there's these kind of moments of sort of making a choice to trust or not to trust and these being like really kind of profound choices mm. um and that really like yeah because i am a, a young woman you know and i'm on my own always i do everything on my own yeah. and i'm going to meet guys that i don't know you know and i'm just going and doing it because i i'm pursuing this thing and, and there's a kind of a there's a, like the risks are really really obvious in one way but actually once when like i always like immediately i felt immediately guilty that i ever even considered that anything could have happened to me because these people have been so amazing and looked after me so well and i've never ever felt anything except like just i'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed by how generous um people have been on this project and not for and the motivation being what like i have no money you know <laughs> I, I i have no i'm not really good, that famous you know there's no and the thing like what i'm known for doesn't is not like in any way sort of going to benefit them mm -hmm. um and just kind of yeah and it's very much on a very personal level kind of people kind of seeing why i you know me being able to explain why this is interesting and worth doing and seeing what i put into it and thinking that you know i'm gonna help this person and hopefully it'll you know it'll and then and it's ongoing you know yeah. and um uh yeah so that's it so i met the guy went to the apartment his name is emad and uh emad like yeah is a sierra leonean like emigre living in london with his family and he spends half and half his time so he produces and writes films and is part of the home film industry in sierra leone and also lives in england right. and um he would have been like the, he is the guy who works with stars combined to like transpose their live shows and their sketches and he brings it on, he brings it to the screen and um so he's the, the person to meet and um again like lives down the road from me <laughs> so since you're half of your family background is Sierra Leone um but you grew up completely in Ireland am I right yeah yeah, yeah. So, kind of a mixture of both things um because i'm like really a white person like a very fair-skinned um yeah. my familiarity is always internal and um like i know what's going on in the sense like when people are talking but people don't think that i know because uh, apparently i am foreign but yeah. um so there's the initial thing where i feel like i feel a lot of familiarity and there are a lot of kind of like small things that maybe going to Sierra Leone particularly because I only went there quite recently in the last like I've been twice in the last uh, four years um but there were certain things that I thought were like just particularly just idiosyncrasies of particular to my own dad and okay. um, being like the dad is like this and he has these ideas or attitudes or expectations and that's just dad and then kind of going to Sierra Leone and being like oh no there's like millions of people who feel this you know who, who think in that particular way or have this kind of even it's, it's like a certain tonality of voice or a type of um, huh. way of like talking and um that being like a kind of a really lovely thing around like oh no that's 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 where that's from you know yeah. and um and um yeah so there's that and then then after being there for a while there's like the layer of kind of going so you know certain things but really you don't know anything and like the familiarity kind of having a limit and kind of more kind of realizing how heavily cultured I am in being an Irish person like really my thoughts and feelings aren't in Creole you know and when and it's not just about a language but it's about it like a kind of a, a style of thought like a kind of a way of thinking that happens in languages like and I'm bilingual because I speak 
Irish Gaelic so I have I know what it feels like to think in another language and to really dream in another language and like to speak to have like to sleep talk in another language and I have that as an experience so I kind of really felt the difference it's like yes I understand Creole very very well um, and I can speak it but when it came to trying to speak concepts like talk about particular concepts that I've only ever experienced in English in a like a really really like uh, sort of cultivated educated kind of milieu yeah. <laughs> um, trying to then sort of talk about those things that are supposed to be talking about real life you know because that's what theory and philosophy are always trying to say that they're talking about our human condition and then actually right. trying to bring those to a place where um, it, it is lived and we're trying to talk about it and then not the language is completely useless and then kind of going but no really what does that really mean when I'm talking about like what does even collaboration like what is that and how do I talk about collaboration and actually describe collaboration um, or an idea of um, commitment you know what how do I actually talk about what does commitment really mean and how do I not use the word commitment but actually describe commitment to someone yeah. <laughs> and because every like you know those are things that human beings know but how to sort of say well this is the thing this is the way that I'm understanding this and realizing that all those thoughts and those kind of they're like little devices but they're all completely sort of couched in a whole set of kind of of, of power dynamics that are kind of completely exclusive and if I want to use, if they're going to be utilized in any way, like these tools or these devices are going to be useful in any real situation that this, this kind of, yeah, they have to be kind of reprocessed and applied to a really particular conversation to, to be able to give an example to someone or to talk about this particular thing that we're doing and why um, this is important to me and to try and make a situation kind of plausible where someone can say well this is actually important to me and sort of be able to negotiate that and um yeah so i don't know if that makes sense no it does it does um so i, I am a little curious about uh if you could say say a little bit more about your your irishness in relationship to some of this stuff so um you know you, you just said that you you see yourself very much as an irish person or or you, you at least when you're in Sierra Leone feel that way has it always felt that way in Ireland as well? Did, did I think that like identity like that is a is a really fascinating thing. It's like in in Ireland, well because I'm white, like I I appear to be a white person. I've always integrated very very easily in Ireland, and also my parents' decision to send me to immersion school so that I would be fluent in Gaelic, and mm. those decisions have all made it easy for me to identify. But always knowing like that not everyone's dad is black, and you know that. Like, the, I guess the really early kind of realizations of my difference were like when, like my grandmother only spoke in Creole and um, I always, always understood her. And I remember um, having like a friend over from school and she was in the house and she was talking to us and she went out of the room and my friend was like, I don't even know what was your grandmother saying? And I'm like, what? You don't know what she was saying? She yeah. was saying this like what that's English <laughs> and they were like no and like realizing that no that's not English because also the thing about Creole is that it's that's like a it's a dialect you know and there's lots of English in there and to me it just sounds like English mm. and I can hear the English in it it's like the other thing it's like just another way of thinking or speaking English um and um yeah and that's an attitudinal rather than uh, like for me it's just more like there's a creole attitude there's a creole way of reading the world or explaining things and those and that's um yeah because it's a hybrid language there there's lots of english there so it never really felt different until i was told that it was and then kind of learning that lesson again when i go and i'm like kind of very much embedded in a, like in sierra leone where i'm there for a long time and i realized that I don't know how to think. I don't have that Creole attitude. Okay. I can understand it and I, I recognize it, but I can't like ape it very well. And when I try, I feel kind of disingenuous to myself. And uh, yeah. the comfort that I have is with the voice that I have and the way that I think. Right. And um, that's kind of, yeah, I think that was like, yeah, that was one of the. Well, and, and so you speak Gaelic um, as well. What, why, why did your parents decide to send you to immersion school? I, th I think that they thought that it would 
be good for me. <laughs> um, that it, that yeah. I mean, I think my well, my mom I think always liked the Irish language. My dad. Are they Irish speakers? No. Okay. Neither of them. My dad tried to learn. Actually, he went to like grown up school for uh, um, learning Irish, and then. My mum has some Irish, but I think it was, yeah, it was like aspirational, I think would be, would probably be the right way of, of describing it because it was about, um, you know, me having something that they didn't have. Yeah. And like in my, in my father's case, like having a sense of belonging to a country or to a culture. And in my mum's case, yeah, having like an ability to express yourself in, in what would be our native language, really, because Ireland and I, that was another thing that became really apparent is that Ireland is really post-colonial in the same, like not in the same way that Sierra Leone is, but there are certain things that happened there that I heard about there that reminded me of Ireland. Like one of the biggest problems with uh, tackling the Ebola crisis there at the moment is this kind of inherent distrust of the state and this kind of very anti-authoritarian thing where like in Kenema, the WHO sent in an ambulance to try and get an Ebola case out of there and the crowd turned the ambulance over and beat the driver and like drove, tried to run them out of town. And things like that would happen in Ireland. Like if you drive the ambulance or the fire engine into Ballymun, that could happen. Like the, this sort of, regardless of what the agency of the authority is, the fact that it's there is something that's completely rejected by people. And that's like, that felt like a really like very, very much a symptom of the kind of oppression and distrust that... Uh, colonization kind of has on, on, on a people and um well that lasts a very long time yeah and it it, it kind of gets weird over time like kind of any kind of trauma that sort of sits in a body for too long it gets kind of more fucked up than it was when it happened and very very difficult to undo and it's like there's no the antidote is is very difficult to kind of uh, to formulate and i think that in terms of what we were talking about yesterday about this idea of capitalism and kind of how, how, how Marxism has failed us but and the, the result of that being like the failure of capitalism never having any kind of an antidote mm. and then um, those things being very much on the surface in, in Sierra Leone um, well, so, so most of our listeners probably won't be too familiar with what the political significance of speaking Gaelic or speaking Irish is yeah. uh, and I, I mean I don't completely either so can you can you say a little bit about that because you also taught it for a bit yeah i i continue to teach it yes that? and i, I about that? yeah well i'm from the south of ireland so i don't it's not as heavily kind of politicized for me to be a gaelic speaker and for my parents to elect to make sure that i was um, um it's more because there's not the same type of tension and sectarian violence and that this the civil war was a further from us you know um so i don't also think the reasons my parents wanted me to speak irish would be quite different than the reasons maybe other people would have to send like there's like 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 they're not it wasn't like some kind of massive sense of nationalism or republicanism like that made my parents want me to speak irish um i think that like i encountered a lot of that in in the schools that i went to um, not in a, a sense of violence, but just a, a kind of yeah, a sense of yeah, nationalism and, and um, um, and a sense of national pride. But for me, like one of the most interesting things about kind of going through those schools is like separating an idea of being really interested in like in being engaged with a culture and believing in its kind of resuscitation and like kind of um, making it li- living again rather than just perpetuating it as it was. Um, and so that being not necessarily the same as, you know, being a nationalist and the kind of exclusions that that might have. It's like, I am Irish, I am not English, because those things don't actually apply to me at all, because I am Irish. But also one of my parents is in, has got like a British passport and my great grandmother was British. So those things, those I am this, not that never i never had an opportunity to be i'm yeah. i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a girl not a boy is maybe the, the only as a kid i kind of knew those binaries were there but then i've never had a very easy time sort of um accepting kind of kind of yeah that sort of um just splitting of things into one thing or the other um um so i suppose you know to be an irish speaker in in the south of Ireland, you're in a minority immediately. There's only about thirty to forty thousand, mm. kind of. Uh, that's not. E- I'm not even an indigenous speaker. I learnt Irish, but there, in terms of like where I did the documentary, that was in 
a small kind of um, Connemara in, in the rural um, west of Ireland where there's still indigenous speakers and people never stopped in the sense that the kind of uh, uh, cultural cleansing of Irish never really took off there. People, mm. <laughs> people stayed speaking Irish and the, the dialect they speak there is like very, very distinct. Whereas the Irish I would speak is kind of, uh, it's called standard Irish. It's like when the Gaelic revival was happening and when there was a revolution in Ireland and and there was this March decision to try and bring back our culture, like through bringing back our stories, but also teaching the language again. And yeah, they had to re, not reinvent it, but, you know, get printing presses to print it and kind of decide how things were going to be spelt. Right. You know, in a language that is mostly an oral tradition, you know, there's a lot of letters for a long time in Ireland. But then um, with kind of the, re the oppression of the language, there's this kind of stripping out of it. And then um, coming to kind of wanting to print school books for kids, you know, um, and having to make a decision on how that was going to be spelt. And you see this in France as well, like we're like French, you know, yeah. everyone has to speak French. And I really like that that point that you made, actually. It's like, you know, Occitan is not, you're not French if you're speaking Occitan, you know. Right. And then, um, Breton. Uh, Breton. And yeah, and like kind of a real sort of, uh, yeah, so I speak standardized Irish. And it was very, very interesting to go and, and be immersed in, in Connemara, where they speak a different different one. And, um, and them knowing me different as well. I'm kind of like, it's really clear you're from Dublin, you're fluent, but you're definitely <laughs> not, you're not one of us. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, what was the, what was the purpose of the Breton Army? Um, it was again a collaboration thing. I was uh, going and working with uh, groups that they were they were existing communities, as in not community um, part of the uh, an indigenous Irish speaking community. But even within that, again, like the definition of community being that it was one of the groups I worked with was a group of amateur actors, and this is a group of people that come together and they do stuff together and form a community in that sense, and they do things. And so I, I engaged with them and started talking to them, and we made like a performance and a sculpture together. And um, another group of people, um, a community defined by the fact that um, there was like three old guys who were really, really highly skilled boat builders. And there were three like young guys, like 11, 12 and 15, that were learning these skills from them. And they got together like twice a week and they built this amazing boat together. And um, that was and they spent like a year doing it and they launched it and so they were, they were a group and I went and I was like I was attracted to them because of the skills that they had and also this like beautiful kind of learning thing that was happening and this kind of instructional thing but it's not top down they were like shoulder to shoulder building a boat together and the boat sailed and they go out in the boat and they caught fish with the boat and then they took the boat to a fair and the you know and the you know and that being just a really lovely thing and just getting to know those guys and we made a, we made a sculpture together as well that decorated um the heritage center and they were like that's what they wanted to do with it and that being something that was really really nice and like not that like and like my agency here being something that's kind of quite floppy and flexible it's like <laughs> i decide some things and decide by decide i mean i propose and go can we do that and can the net be orange and not blue and you know oh, right. and like yeah those really small decisions um and maybe I'll be like, but I'm really interested in this particular story you were telling me about this fish trap. And can you draw the fish trap for me? And kind of reading things, like just listening, mostly absorbing. And then kind of my kind of agency or the kind of where I kind of make decisions or points of what you call points of control um, would be kind of saying, oh, I really like that story that you told me about the fish traps. Um, can you draw that for me? And then they'll be like, yeah, and they're not. They don't feel like I'm saying, oh, we have to do the fish trap because right. <laughs> I need to see what that looks like. And so they make an image for me to show me what they're talking about. And that yeah. becomes a thing that I'm like, oh, cool. Um, I, I think that, with that one is like, can we make could we make that out of wood? You know, <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, we can make that out of wood. You just get the, the steam and, you know, it's like it becomes this. It's really like simple, really, really simple. But it's about sort of making it easy and not. Um, being really scared that it's not going to come together or if I'm not in charge that it's not going to happen and all these really like yeah tricky delicate things and, and you've done um, you've done some other some other uh, art pieces throughout Ireland yeah. uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your other art practices okay so yeah my personal practice like when I'm not collaborating um, with other people um, is 
usually consists of me engaging with something that's like outside the canon of art in one way but it's also quite a common thing for art, art does this where they like art will go and take like a drawing of you know a comet <laughs> and take that and bring it into a video and um have someone write a song about that um, i made that up there i think i might do that <laughs> um but yeah so like uh one of the um things that is kind of consistently interesting for me is this idea of natural formations and unnatural um or man-made formations um and kind of how nature produces like particular types of rock and uh then those things are left around and people find them and create stories about how that was made and also how people in the past have produced like stone things that have no particular function but took years to make in particular i'm talking about a piece that i made called petrosphere which was um yeah referencing these massive perfectly round uh granite things sculptures uh spheres completely spherical um that have appeared in costa rica huge ones in costa rica and little ones in scotland and they're just these kind of weird little anomalies and um but they look like these uh completely natural things called concretions that you find in australia that are also like these round kind of boulders and um yeah this kind of relationship between yeah what m people make with their hands and what the earth makes um and uh yeah and that being kind of quite a formal thing where it's about how the things look and then also how how i make these kind of replicas and this idea of kind of mimicking um nature but ultimately failing that and then also me being a natural thing and so that's still it's still nature and um that being um yeah there's, there's something in that and making particularly with the working with the hands being this really kind of uh intentioned natural kind of process and i try and approach that those things aren't gone from the collaborative work in a sense that's what i bring to it so the film where the guy's making something with his hands and he's working with clay and he's he found something in the ground and um you know those those things are still there it's not like this is my private thing that i don't share um and this is the thing that we do together it's like it's all there it's like everything that i do is uh available to the person that i'm kind of collaborating with if they see a thing that and they're like oh i really like the way that you work with clay can we do a clay thing you know it's like it, it works both ways um and um yeah and also like you know performance and like um you know making an object do something that maybe it doesn't look like it should do or using art as a thing or in kind of imbuing an art object with some sort of power like there was a piece that I did where I took um Tai Chi um form um really beautiful instructional video that I found on YouTube and I just made my own version of it I copied it I studied it for a long time and I got a Tai Chi teacher to help me yeah. learn it and then um I decided that I was going to do the movement but I was going to use an art object in the movement and I was going to it, it was going to take on the significance just in terms of just people would look at it and go but what what's that how is that part of the thing and um and not really give any no there's no explanation i'm not going to say this is magic or something like that but you can just kind of go oh and that's sort of like we do that all the time with objects this is valuable and it does this and you're like no it doesn't you know yeah. <laughs> that's 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 a piece of paper that can't make that car run and you know and it's about this kind of exchanging something and imbuing it with value and trading something up to make it valuable and then um, that being an interesting sort of thing that the uh, an artwork does that too and trying to just uh bring those things like little babushka dolls and one inside the other and sort of by sort of creating something that sort of maybe um sort of jars a little bit mm -hmm. makes a system like that maybe a little bit more visible by sort of just like dislocating something a little bit where then you're sort of like it's not functioning the way i'm used to it functioning so therefore i have to look at why and then that kind of makes us kind of uh see it in a different way so so one of the things that i, I found really interesting about your uh your piece yesterday when we were at the la la land translation seminar um and i'll put up a link in, in this podcast so it's up to to the video and, and so people can watch um 
the the video that we're talking about here as well. Um, but one of the things you did with um, this comedian this year, Leon Canadian. People Pekin, yeah. yeah. People Pekin, um, which means people's child, you told me? Yeah, Pekin is child, so people Pekin is like, yeah, the child of the people. Okay, so, so uh, y- you did this video with him where he finds this uh, piece of art that you made, correct? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He finds it and then he tries to, to make another one because he finds that it's like a money-making machine? Yeah, literally, yeah. yeah. Uh, can you tell, it seems to me like you think a lot about the relationship between art and um, wealth or the creation of uh, the way that money gets spent in the art world. Uh, where did that come from for you? Where did that? Uh, well, it's kind of like being an artist is a really interesting uh, sort of economic position to be in, um, where like you're mostly poor all the time. Um, but... Uh, you have to have a certain set of privileges even to be able to be poor all the time, you know, where no, I don't, I don't have any kids and I might not be able to have kids because I can't afford them um, because I've decided to be an artist. And so it's like these weird, you make choices and like you put, um, yeah, it's a really interesting economic position to be in. And then also you're always aware. It's sort of like, I had a really, there's really, really interesting workshops going on um, in, in London around, um, you know, the idea of doing an arts PhD in the first place and why would one do that? Because what does it even mean? And this and these kind of discussions that come around like the art world and being an artist is sort of like the only maybe comparable uh, other um, kind of uh, practice or, or um, profession is like maybe being a footballer. And in football, you have like kids playing barefoot football in slums and then you also have guys making like millions and being traded for millions and it being this like billion, billion, billion... Um, you know dollar industry and then you have most of the people that are love that love football and do football are like not those guys and similarly in art like you have this kind of constellation of art stars and you're like oh you know Tracy Emin she's a millionaire and like Damien Hirst he's a millionaire and like they're millionaires for really particular reasons and there's very very particular mechanisms that support that kind of uh, practice and how you get there um, and it's it's like calculable to a certain extent and then there's an uncalculable element to it as well and kind of making decisions about being an artist and a practitioner and how you make your work and what you want your work to do for you and like a decision to be commercial or not to be commercial and if you even know what that is you know and there's this kind of an intangible part of it as well but yeah so for me it's like it's very lived thing for me where I have to like experience this sort of yeah this economy of of being involved in the art world and then so that's like that's like a money economy and then there's like an a a meaning economy there's like a symbolic economy that happens and like yeah it's feeling like a very much um yeah like a study of economics and like not so much a study but like an experience of economics involved in in being an artist and um it feeling like that is an important thing to address well then how how does when you're working with, with these people in Sierra Leone, which uh, you know is a very impoverished uh, country, um, how do you navigate that there? Because I, I know you told me last night about an, another artist who's doing work in the Congo. That's um, yeah, Renzo Martins. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, his sounded very to me anyway. I don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> well, you need to see the work. I'd say as well. It'd be really yeah. important for you to see that and have your own opinion on it. And it, it sounded very exploitative in a lot of ways, whereas yours seems to be. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess that that's something that I constantly have to check because the imbalance, regardless, I'm not a rich person, I'm not like a millionaire and I'm not making money off this, but the imbalance is sort of, um, it's so dominant The imba- as, as a factor, the, yeah. the, 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 the amount, it's so strong. It's like a kind of, I constantly have to check, you know, that I could be exploiting my position unintentionally even because the difference is so so vast in some ways and um yeah just really having to have a like a gut kind of is this fair you know what can i give am i giving as much as this person is giving to this thing and do we both have the same investment in it or understanding that we there might not be the same but are they of equal volume or magnitude or like kind of what's the commitment level here and um what can be achieved and we're like yeah and yeah kind of understanding what 
kind of value um people bikini might place on what we did together and what value i might place on what we did together and um kind of understanding where my level of responsibility is in that and i feel like my responsibility is to be like really clear and honest about who i am and what i'm doing and um and what i hope to do with the work that we make together and um and you know and make my my motivations as kind of transparent and clear as possible and if that is acceptable um then we have an agreement in the sense like if you're okay with the fact that i don't have a lot of money but i have this much and we can do this and i have one camera with this battery and this is what i'm able to do and these are the ideas that i have and um do you want to do something you know and just to be really um myself um honest and clear and if that's good enough then kind of a just that's the only thing i can trust because everything else is kind of out of my control like they're sort of and i'm sort of um inherited the privilege that i have by just being born in ireland and being a, a white person and you know having the support of an institution and those things but even kind of with all of that it's still something i've had to sort of fight for within those institutions to get the support for this project that right. nobody really understands why it's worth a damn you know <laughs> you know and this that kind of thing as well like kind of it's it's really really interesting and it's just it's like really it feels like there's this this kind of traversal of two different worlds so in our last in our last couple of minutes because I, I know you're going to go catch your flight back to london um can you, can you tell us a little bit about why you became an artist why you became uh, uh why you think it's valuable oh yeah. um I wanted to be an artist since I was like 14. Probably yeah, my mum would say since I was like an infant because my mum is an artist and that's the way that I grew up, I suppose. Um, no one ever, like there was no, my parents never told me what to do ever. Uh, so there was no like you should be this or that. And sometimes I wish they'd been more like that than I like might be a doctor. And <laughs> But um, I'm not. I'm going to be doctor of something else. But um, yeah. uh it it was very much just I, I it was the thing that I needed to do and it, it's really I don't I can't really justify it it's sort of like this is what I do and it's the thing that I can't imagine doing anything else other than this and if this is what I have how can I uh, you know have a set of principles that works with what I have to do something that I believe in and that I think is beneficial and um yeah and that's kind of it's that's all I can hope for really um and I think that's that's sort of it really Thank you for listening. I hope you found what Alice had to say interesting and inspiring and perhaps something that you can build with. Uh, I hope that you're angry. Uh, I hope that you are upset and I hope that you can turn that into some way to associate with those who are angrier, who are in positions that make them angrier. This is J. Cole, Be Free, behind me. Uh, I apologize that there hasn't been a podcast in a while. Um, things have been kind of difficult work-wise for me. I had to take a little break uh, from doing this because I had uh, the introduction to non-Marxism translation had to be finished. It needed some some work at the in the last stages. That should be out soon, though. And you know, writing uh, these two books on Narwhal has also taken up a lot of time on top of teaching and trying to have a personal life. Uh, but those who you know listen to this podcast or who look forward to it, I don't know how many of there you are. I don't know if this is reaching anyone. But I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank you for thinking about these ideas and engaging with the people I bring on the show. If you think it's good, please you know recommend it to a friend. Uh, if you think of someone that you would like me to interview, please get in touch with me and make that recommendation I'm hoping to have uh, uh, at least two more podcasts come out um, during this holiday season so around National Genocide Day and Christmas alright I'm going to pack up now
Gonna go downtown and do something. Hope you guys do something. And when you're out there and people are telling you to calm down, police officers are telling you to calm down, the President of the United States is telling you to calm down, I want you to remember that his name was Mike Brown. And even though the state has sanctioned his murder, and the state left him in the street for four and a half hours. His name is still his name. His name is on our lips. And remember that your name is your name. Still approached with his weapon drawn and he fired several more shots and my friend died.